Good morning, everyone. I want to thank everybody for being here this morning. Before we get started, if you will, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you and praise you for this day and this time you've given us, Father, to study your word. We thank you for your word, Father, your, the Bible that is the miracle that you've passed down through time to us, Father, so that we would know your will and know what you expect of us, Father, and so that we can learn how to have a proper relationship with you and follow you through this life. Father, we thank you again for all your blessings. We ask that you would lead and guide us in this study. Help us to learn what you want us to know and help us to draw closer to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we had left off after question seven. We were ready for question eight. Now we're looking at we're looking at Revelation chapter two, and we're talking about uh, verses one through seven. And this is the loveless church, is how it was headed in my Bible. And this is the church of Ephesus. Now I'm going to read verses four through seven to just kind of recap where we are, and we'll look at our questions. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, oh wait, sorry. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So after reading this letter to Ephesus, we had answered questions and we were down to question eight. And question eight, for what else does Jesus commend them here at this church of Ephesus? For hating the Nicolaitans, for hating the Nicolaitans right? They, they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Yeah, I, I knew exactly what you, whether we pronounce it, however you pronounce it, it's, I, you know, that's right. That's what I do too. I do the best I can and that's the way it is. So, there's not a whole lot known about these. They're supposed to be the followers of some guy named Nicholas, possibly, at least. That's the idea. And they abused, the idea of the Nicolaitans were, they abused the idea of grace and made that an excuse to sin, to allow them to sin. And they were practicing greedy things. They were practicing greed and also uh, sexual immorality, probably, uh, and some of this is going to come up in later verses. And really, we've heard some of this in some of the uh, epistles before now, even, as far as having false teachers and people teaching things wrong and perverting the gospel of Christ. So they were doing that for their own selfish gain. Now, uh, so as that's the, that's the last that our study book had on this letter. But if we look at... Verse 7, I think there's a number of things here at verse 7. 
when we look at that verse, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What, is, what does that mean? What is the Lord trying to communicate to us? Hey, yeah, well, go ahead, man. The lesson that this church in Ephesus had fallen from the first love, things that that might have meant, that they were still holding firm against the Nicolaitans, uh, giving them that, that message. So kind of like any of us should be hearing this message, too, and taking the lesson from that, from the church in Ephesus, too. Right. We, yes. Kim. About being receptive to this and taking it to heart. It's about being receptive and taking it to heart. It's about learning the lessons that he's trying to teach these people in this lesson, right? I mean, in this letter, right? It's taking what he's telling them and applying that to ourselves and learning that, right? And we can see examples of, of similar references as far as the uh, he who has an ear. And, and even I started to misspeak that because I'm used to hearing it. If you look at like Matthew... Uh, Chapter 11, verse 15, when he's talking about John the Baptist and the comparison with himself. This is you know, when the Lord was speaking. If you look at uh, Matthew chapter 13, in the parable of the sower, he also mentions this as far as um, having an ear to hear and listening and understanding, because that's what, that's what he wants. He doesn't want us to just hear the words. He wants us to understand it and be able to make use of it, right? If we look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 16, he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. It relates to understanding what is being said, to know the meaning, like in the parable of the sower, and to act upon it. In this case, it, you know, it's to heed the encouragement and the warning from the letter. And he uses this in a lot of the letters. So then... What promise does the Lord make in that verse? Yeah, man. Well, um, kind of to tie it back to verse 6, too, that the Nicolaitans, we, we talked about what the problem with them might be, but one thing with their name, that uh, Nick, the Nica beginning is sort of like Nike, are the shoes we have today, which is victory. Okay. The overcoming, that's the same root for that. So when he says, to him who overcomes, that's the same related word there. So he's kind of making a, maybe a whole head of words that, you know, I'm glad that you're not overcoming sin by just ignoring it and doing all the sin you want, or perhaps that's where the name came from. But you need to overcome, and then you'll get the, the tree of life and the paradise of God. Right, he's making the promise that if to he who overcomes, and there may be a play on words there. I had, I had seen where they thought maybe they were following a guy named Nicholas, but it could be that it comes from this root word. That's quite possible. So, but yeah, he's he's promising to him who overcomes, I'll give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise, in the midst of the paradise of God, right? So, yes, Pat. I have a question about the paradise of God. Right. Now, the Jesus said, and I'm going to quote from Matthew 25, verse 13. Well, this is what I was going to talk about, so thank you. Yes, uh, the question is, so 
is this paradise, is this heaven, or is this some other paradise, right? And I understand that because we've, I think we've heard this paradise before. If you look at the word used to the thief on the cross and the word used here, it's the same word. And he talks about the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. Where else do we know the tree of life is in the midst of? The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. Everybody, everybody knows. Okay. So, you know, it implies that, that this paradise would be a garden. The, the paradise word, actually, uh, it implies that it's a garden anyway, just so you know in the Greek. Yeah. Yeah, to, to amplify what you just said. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which of course is written in Hebrew, yep. when it talks about the Garden of Eden, it uses that very word paradise that's used here. So that's that's precisely what John's telling us. Right. So it sounds like it is the Garden of Eden. If not, it is very similar. But I, I would I would say based on what we're reading here that it is at least in a that it is the Garden of Eden. Yes. man with God and having access to the tree of life and what Adam and Eve had before they fell in their sin was they had communication with God every day. They walked in the cool of the day in the garden yep. and spoke with him and God walked with them and they had this very close relationship and they had access to the tree of life. There was also the temptation of the tree of good needle. However, you don't see so you don't see that tree of life again until Revelation, which kind of gets back to the idea of paradise restored and our reconciliation with God. Right. And if you look back in Genesis chapter three, which I had meant to make a note to myself here, but nonetheless, it's all right. Uh, Genesis chapter three, if we go down, you'll notice, you know, um, one of, like in verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever in, in this condemned state, is the way that was intended. Um, you know, that's when he pushed Adam and Eve out of the garden. So. So that is what we're referring to, actually, which was, I thought, a very good connection, and it's uh, very interesting and meaningful to us, or it should be meaningful to us. Does anybody have anything else on that before we move on? Yes. This idea of overcoming, we see that all through this book. Yes, so overcoming. That overcome, and there's this constant encouragement that we can, we can overcome, we can endure, we can be victorious, we can persevere. Jesus has done the hard work. He's provided salvation. He's triumphed over death and sin. We have the tools, and it's up to us to accept that and to live like him, to have that victory and to be an overcomer. Right. Over, overcoming is a, is a big part of the theme here. And overcoming, what he's talking about, and, and we can be victorious in these things through Jesus, not really through ourselves, but through Jesus, we can be victorious in all these 
tribulations, afflictions, persecutions, all these things we're going to read about, we can overcome and be uh, with the Lord through all these things. We can still be overcomers and be victorious. So if we look at, let's see, the next, the next letter is, my heading says, uh, the persecuted church. This is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. So it's a shorter letter, but still. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So um, in this letter, for what does the Lord commend the church in Smyrna? What's the, the good things, well, for this church that he mentions? Now, your translation, I'll just mention right off, may not say works. The New King James Version does say, it does list out um, in verse 9, I know your works. Other translations just say, I know your tribulation and poverty or your afflictions and poverty. And that's, uh, anyway, just going to mention that because you may see that. I'm still using the New King James Version, but I look at a lot of different things. Yes, Jim. Did you, Jim, did you have something? No? All right. So anyway, so he's, uh, he's talking about their, their tribulation and their poverty, but they are rich, right? He commends them for, um, I guess that's maybe that, maybe commending is kind of the wrong word, but the fact that they are going through this tribulation and poverty, that they are being persecuted, right? Um, so why does the Lord say they are rich? Yes, man. They're rich toward God, even though they're struggling financially. Right. They may be struggling financially here in this earth, but they are rich in spirit and in heavenly rewards. You know, obviously they were standing for the Lord through some hard times here. They are, you know, being persecuted. So... If we look at uh, question 10, who was guilty of blasphemy in Smyrna? Those who were slandering. Those who were slandering. Those who... The verse says those who say they are Jews, right? But they are a synagogue of Satan. So we get the... Well, okay. So who are these Jews? Yes. Right. Right. They they are Jews by blood, 
they disagree with the Christian faith or what they would have called what the way back then a lot. Um, and, you know, perhaps they're deceived and just following their traditions, but they are rejecting Christ and they are actually adding to the persecution of this congregation. Yes, Pat? Why would they be mentioned in the church of Smyrna if they were not really Christians? Well, he talks about them as being an opponent to this uh, congregation. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The implication there, to me at least, now, this is what class is for, but the implication to me is that they, this is a group of Jews that are actually opposed to this congregation. So they're not part of the congregation. Not part of the congregation. That's my understanding. Yeah, it's like what they're encountering in the community. Yes. Yeah, so some other group. Yeah, and, and since this church is having so much trouble and these people are a part of it, it could be that uh, these people, you know, have allies in the community that are making it difficult for this church, I, you know, this congregation. I, that would be supposition, of course, but, but they are not following the Lord. Yes? And part of what I've studied that kind of went on here was that the Jewish people had a legal situation with the Roman government where you know how the, they were all supposed to be giving um, homage to the, the emperor as a god and yep. do all that. The Jewish people had a religious exemption because of their power and political or whatever. And so the Christians initially were seen as part of that. But then eventually as this opposition happened, that rift was more obvious, and so then the Christians lost their religious exemption. And so that's where a lot of the persecution from the Roman government came from. First with the Jewish people, and then the Roman government. Oh, okay. So I didn't know the Jews had a exemption from, from the worship of Caesar, so that's interesting. Okay. So they allowed them to have kind of an exemption, but then, and they included the Christians at first, but then later they, as this rift was created, they, they, they lost their exemption. Okay. All right. Well, that would go along. That's going to go in line with some of the other things we read too, some of the letters. So that's, that's interesting. Okay. So they're using whatever power they have though, to come against this congregation. All right. So question 11, why were they not to fear what they were about to suffer? Well, it says, I'm sorry. Even if they do suffer these things, and even if it's come to death, they will get a crown of life. So they really don't have anything to fear. I mean, when it comes down to the torment, God is going to see that they overcome that. Right. Like so many things in life, no matter what happens here, Jesus is going to give us that, that crown of life, right? No matter what happens here, if we suffer until death, if we die, Jesus is still going to give us that crown of life. So, uh, also there's the mention that it's the tribulation mentioned here was specifically for 10 days, so it's going to be kind of short. In the overall scheme of things, 10 days of, of bad is still bad, but in the scheme of life, 10 days is not horrible. So, yes? That's, that's really challenging. 
what, what, <laughs> what he's saying here. You know, you think about, if you put that on us, and that yeah. we're, we're going to be beat up and killed for our faith, but don't be afraid. You know, okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah. We, we really need to get our, our eyes calibrated to what Jesus is saying, is that this life doesn't matter so much as the big picture, the eternal life. And that's, that's right. what he's saying here. That's, that's, that's a difficult thing. This, yeah, it is very difficult, and it's easy. Like, it's easy for me to say that, right? But when you have to face that down, if you ever do, then that's that's a whole other story. That That is really difficult, and that's extremely difficult. Um, Church in so many areas, I can face that problem all the time. They're killed for being Christians, locked up for being Christians. Yeah. In this country, maybe we aren't. We're very blessed in this country. We are blessed, and I don't know if we... Someday I think that we'll probably have a relation, but right now we're at a thing that if you're a Christian, you know about what church you belong to, whether you're a Christian or not. You're not really tormented. Somebody might say something bad enough, but that's about it. Yeah, right. Right now, we really don't face the type, anywhere near the type of persecution they were facing back then. I mean, that's that's true. There are other countries in the world where they do face this type of persecution, though. And I can't remember specifically. I was reading of somewhere recently where they they are actively killing Christians. So I mean, it. There are places in the world where this persecution is happening, but. We are blessed to live here. Yes. I, I can think of some kind of persecution in the United States that we're having that is kind of quiet right now, but it's going to get louder. And that is people that uh, have a sin that want to be in the church and they're told that they can't be because of their lifestyle oh, yeah. or their, uh, their agreement on abortion or maybe homosexuality, that it cannot be preached in the pulpit. And some places are saying that you can't do that anymore. Everybody can come in. I think we can see a push in society to do what you're talking about. They want to make it so that basically, and I'm not saying everybody in society is this way, but there are forces and people in society that want to make it so that we would have to accept any sin and not preach against that, not teach against that no matter what it is, whether it be abortion, which we know is murder, or, you know, be the uh, the immoral lifestyles, you know, um, of homosexuality. And then, then there's the whole transgender thing, which totally just doesn't even follow reality or facts at all. So that's that's another different story. Yes. Well, this may not, I may not be able to say this the way I should, but, you know, they just sound into a law. Yeah. Where the homosexuals and transvestites, they have real life and that overcome anything. They have a legal right to do anything that anyone else does. And if that is to come into church and preach in their congregation, they have the right to that according to the law. But well, as the church goes, we cannot allow it. So we're going to be. Right. They have passed a, a law. It's it's uh it's some sort of weird marriage act where they're yeah, so basically they're saying that basically the homosexual marriage is the same as a traditional marriage. Yeah. Okay. First of all, that's that's they're just trying to redefine the word marriage. That does not exist. 
a marriage is a man and a woman with the Lord, right? It's a, it's a religious institution. I know legally they want to control it, but it's a religious institution, marriage is. And it is from God between a man and a woman. It has nothing to do with these other things that they're doing. They, you know, legally they can do whatever and they can say these things, but that doesn't change the, the truth or the fact of where these things come from. Well, the plain simple truth is that these things come into the church and these people, I mean, I love the people, but you hate the sin. That right, right. But you cannot allow them to be a part of something that is completely wrong because the government says this is okay, they have this right, they have this protection. Right. Because the Lord's church can't permit that type of action in the church. Right, we can love those people. They're welcome to come to church and listen to the word and learn and hopefully grow and, and all those things. But we can't have them promoting that lifestyle as being okay. That's part of the problem that they're talking about in the epistles and this here where there's all these issues. These issues have been around for thousands of years, really. Yes, ma'am. And that's kind of the chess game of where these things might, might go. But if we think about that, these folks, to the extent that the issue was idolatry and like um, honoring Caesar as God and, and this sort of thing, they weren't necessarily saying, you know, you, you can you can worship Christ too and then also do this, because that's the way the culture was. Right. They would yeah. do all the gods. That's not exclusive. And so some Christians would be like, well, if we just do this, then we'll be okay. Just We'll add, we'll add worshiping Caesar, but we'll also worship Christ, and that doesn't fly. <laughs> we start to right. what we're doing here. That's the same idea. If we start allowing, well, the government says we should do this, and we'll just go ahead and do that, and we'll, but we'll still worship Christ. Well, we yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, we can't do that. We have to stand. We have to. We have to have that line and stand firm on these things. Where we can't just add, like you're saying, the worship of Caesar or whatever it is, and worship Christ. We, you know, you can't worship two masters. Jesus made that plain. We can't do that, whether it be money or Caesar or what was it, the uh, golden statue back in Daniel, you know, or whatever. We can't worship two things. It just won't work. So does anybody have anything else on that before? Let's see. Oh, there was one thing I wanted to mention. The crown mentioned here that Jesus is promising this uh, victor's crown. It's, it's the crown of someone who has won the race. If you think about it, it kind of goes along with some of the things that Paul talks about as far as running the race and winning the race. And if you think back to like the Greek Olympics and the little, the little wreath, it's kind of referring to that, the winner's crown, the winner's wreath of that, of that race, so to speak, or that competition. The winner would have that wreath on their head like a crown. Yes. That wreath is only temporary. The one we're going to receive forever. Right. The one he's going to give us is an eternal crown, right? So, right. That's, that's a great thing to say. That's important, too. So, I did want to make point of that before I forgot. So, if we look at, um, if no one has anything else on this letter. We'll read one, one quick thing. Yes, ma'am. I didn't realize this until just now, but that whole... Oh, that word overcome, which relates to that Nike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which goes to the crown, right? It's a victory crown. Yeah. That's in every every one of these letters. He mentions that. I didn't realize that. All of them. 
I think he does. I think you're right. And there's there's a couple of I had I had uh, I forget if it's I think it's from something I listened to or maybe something I read. There's another type of crown we'll encounter later. And it's not the same as this. And it's, it has a different uh, context and everything. So, but, but, but this is the victor's crown, like you're talking about. This is the one who overcomes by staying faithful to the Lord, right? So that's what this is in regards to. And it is an eternal crown. So if we look at, uh, let's see, the next set of verses in chapter 2 is verses 12 through 17. And this, in my heading, was called the Compromising Church. Okay, so this is a bit of what Matt was talking about a minute ago. We can't really compromise on some of these things. But this is uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And we just hit an exception. He doesn't mention the crown here. But, but the overcome. The overcome. But he does mention the overcoming. And there's Okay, you're talking about the overcoming. I'm sorry. Okay. So the overcoming, but he always mentions the overcoming. <clears throat> the overcoming, sorry. So... I want to look at uh, verse 12, though. Technically, our book does not have a question for verse 12, but I want us to look at that. How does the Lord identify himself in verse 12? Yes, ma'am. That sword out of his mouth. Or he brings that up later in the passage there, too, where it's basically for judgment. His words will judge us, right? Right. And so that sword is going to judge us. Right. He's saying, I am the one, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, right? And that is, um, that is because he will judge us by the word, right? That's, that's what the Lord is reminding us of. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, I'm just going to read this real quick because this follows with that. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner, discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That goes along with that. He's, he's carrying the sword, and he's the one who will judge and who we have to give an account to. So he's reminding them and us 
who he is, who the Lord is. That he is the one that we will report to, that we will give an account to. All right, so if we look at question 12, for what does the Lord commend the church in Pergamos? What, uh, I guess, what good things does he have to say about them? That they're holding fast and they're not denying the faith. Right. Their works, they're holding fast to his name, not defying the faith, even when Antipas was killed. And that was someone who was martyred there. Now, to kind of give some context to that, and this kind of goes with what Matt was saying about the, the worship of the emperor, and they were not protected from that. Uh, Pergamus was kind of like a, kind of like almost a headquarters for this emperor worship this, that was supposed to be happening. And Antipas was martyred for not worshiping Caesar or the emperor, however you want to call him. And so that's, that's kind of the context there of him dying for Christ because he refused to worship someone else. Now, another odd thing, and we'll get into this with question 13. What is said about where they dwell? Where do they live, according to the Lord? Yes, Satan's throne, right? They live where Satan dwells, Satan's throne. So that's kind of an odd thing. And why do you think it was called that? Yes. Well, it's Matt. either what you were saying, the, the emperor worship and the temple is there for that, but there's also a very prominent temple to Zeus, which was considered the, the chief god in the, the Roman and the Greek pantheon. Yep. And so some have considered that that may be what was talked about. So they were just full of all these temples and just worshiping all these not God, gods, false gods. Right. They had a lot. They had a lot going on as far as like the emperor worship, the worship of Zeus, and other other um, Greek gods. You got to remember these people. They're under the control of Rome now, but they've been under the influence of the Greek and the Greek mythology way before Rome even. Because Greek was an empire, Greece was an empire first, right? So, excuse me. Oh, must be just me. Okay, all right. So they were they were eating uh, the food that was offered to idols. Right, and you know Paul talks about not worrying too much about just eating the food, but this actually implies they were actually somehow participating in the rituals too. And if you go back to the. Uh, we're going to get into that, actually, but if you go back to the story of Balaam, you'll see that they they didn't just eat the food of the idols. They bowed and worshipped the idols. So that's kind of where this is going. But yes, that's a bad thing. And in the yes. Old Testament, uh, there's different stories about them worshipping God and, and going to sacrifice their things to the priest and taking it. And then they walk up the hill to their idols, and they would offer more to them. So they were offering both places. There was a mention of that, and I forget exactly where that is, is but that there's some mentions of that. Is, I don't remember right off the top of my head, but yeah, where they were, they were offering their sacrifice to God properly and correctly. But then they were going up the hill to offer to an idol, and that was, and that's part of this corruption that we speak about. You can't. You can't worship two, two masters like that. So I think we're out of time for this morning. I may have even gone over a little bit, but when we pick up here next week, we'll start with uh, question number 
13. Okay? Thank you for your time and your attention.